Welcome to The Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 909-0210. Ah, I'm dating myself. Hello and welcome to The Everyday Novelist. This is our first recording done at Shipfire Ranch, which is our off-grid property that we're going to be developing eventually into an artist retreat, and before then, into a home. And uh, we'll be telling you a lot more about that on the State of the Podcasters episode coming up very soon. So uh, please forgive the rough sound quality, because the good mics are still packed in with all the stuff in the moving truck. But we had a free evening, and we had some wonderful questions, and so we're going to work through those in this block, and uh, hope you enjoy them. All right, so my name is J. Daniel Sawyer. And I'm Kitty Nikian. And today we hear from Herbert, who asks... I know there are two radical schools of thought on revision, with Dean Wesley Smith on the revisions are the method to summon Satan into the world poll, and every school teacher on the revise until you're done and then revise the same number of times again poll. Is the latter school a product of the word processor? I can't imagine people doing nearly as much revision when it meant retyping entire pages, and probably entire chapters. Could one method to avoid revising too much be to mentally require retyping the entire file instead of cut and paste or lots of changes in place? Oh, no, there's an idea. Um, So it's actually a really good question, and uh, revisions do not originate with the word processor, but they become much more dogmatic with the word processor. What used to happen is most writers would either handwrite or type a first draft, Um, If they hand-wrote, then they would give it to a typist to type in, and the typist would correct what minor typos she found as she typed it, and it was always a she. Then the um, writer would go over it, usually with um, an editor, a first reader, a partner, something like that, and redline the draft, and then retype with the correction, give it to the typist, and the typist would retype the corrections in. They would then send it to the publisher who would redline it once more, and um, then those corrections would be entered after approval. They would be mailed back to the writer. The writer would approve or disapprove any of them in pen on the manuscript, and then mail the manuscript back to the publishing house, and the publisher would then have their typist input those changes, retype a fresh draft, and then that would go off to typesetting for the publication. And that's the process that existed ever since the typewriter. And before that, you just remove the typing phase of that. Um, When you get into the ninth, back in the 19th century with Edgar Allan Poe and the pulp writer, Nathaniel Hawthorne and the pulp writers of that era, there weren't a lot of typewriters around until like the 1890s, I think. Um, But... So there were drafts built into the ed- into the publication process. 
Now that's one part of the picture. A second part of the picture is that, quite frankly, English teachers have to justify their existence. Um, and a lot of people that teach creative writing don't write. They love to read and they love creativity. And so they, they act as first reader, essentially, for their creative writing classes. And in order to justify their existence... They always require multiple revisions to try to get these beginning writers up to a professional level, not understanding that that's not exactly how you get to the point where you can write at a professional level. And then the third strain that goes into the revisions or God mentality is a old saw that I believe originally came from a judge that all writing is rewriting. Now, in the law, with legal briefs, with, and in academia, that is often the case, because you're dealing with a lot of technical stuff, and if you want to have any style in there, you have to balance style and technical and content really carefully. So, those things all sort of come together in the 70s, as everybody is... Go, is starting to go to college for the first time. Um, we can see how well that worked out. College is not a good environment for most people. It's not productive or healthy or intellectually stimulating for most people, and it doesn't educate most people. It's designed for a particular sort of person who has a particular way of thinking and a particular aptitude for entering the uh, managerial class. It's not a good place for artists. It's not a good place for people who just want a good career. Unfortunately, the growth in the post-World War II era, include, part of that program was the GI Bill, and because the college degrees, especially from the Ivy League, was the gateway to the management class, everyone sent their children into college in order to get them into the ruling class, which is why we now have too many managers and not enough to manage and this is the point in civilization where things fly apart. You have what Peter Turchin calls the overproduction of the elites. Probably more accurate to call it the overproduction of the bourgeoisie. Because it's not that there are too many elites. It's that there are too many people who have been trained to think they ought to be elites. And there aren't enough elite positions to go around. But that's a whole other topic. Because everyone was going to school, people who wanted to be writers beginning in the 70s, started going to school to learn how to be writers, which is a really bad idea. But literature departments started to shift their rationale around this time from curation, analysis, study, and appreciation to, to a certain kind of literary criticism called deconstruction and towards creative writing, because there was the demand for that among the students. And because of that, a whole bunch of rules got invented to make writing seem like it was something that deserved a college degree course. And these, uh, the traditions from, ac from academic writing, which require a lot of revision, the basic way that publishing worked also got baked into the system, and the availability of word processors shortly thereafter made the words on the page fluid instead of static. So what became, what was originally a 
constrained revision process that was aimed at publication morphed through the 70s and 80s into a continual revision process that was aimed at perfection. And that's not a good way to do things. It's a good way to blow your career up on the launch pad, which is one of the two reasons that Dean, for example, is so utterly opposed to revising at all. The second reason is that Dean is one of those people, and I know this because he's a friend, Dean is one of those people who is incredibly deeply, grouchily critical. And so if he allows himself to go back and revise, he will not be able to let the project go. So that's why that's where his dogmatism on the topic comes from. Um, but the revisions are not the devil, but they are like cocaine or alcohol or tobacco. They make things, they can make things a little better, but if you depend on them too heavily, you can really ruin everything. So that's where that comes from. Now, your idea, could you read again what his idea is for constraining the revision process? Because that seemed really clever. Could one method to avoid revising too much be mentally requiring retyping the entire file instead of just cut and paste or lots of chapters in place? That's actually really, really... Or lots of changes in place. Yeah, that's actually really, really smart and... My revision process and you know, our house revision process has gotten a lot smoother since we actually started printing out manuscripts for redlining instead of doing it in the computer. Um, it So what happens is we print the manuscript out, Kitty redlines it, then I redline it because we catch different kinds of problems. And then as I'm going through and entering the changes... I don't retype the whole manuscript, but as I'm going through and entering the changes, anywhere I have flagged as awkward, which is my word for describing when the music breaks as I'm reading it, those sections I will sit, I will, um, I'll usually just rewrite the paragraph from scratch. I'll hit an enter, you know, do a line break, look at the original, and start back and, re and write the paragraph from scratch, and then I will show them both to Kitty, not telling her which one's which. I'll, um, I'll swap them around and so she can never tell what order they're coming in. And her verdict tells me which one's the better one. It's almost always the revised one, but not always. But that might be something that's particular to the way I process literature because I write with music in my head. Um, there's a rhythm and a, a gestalt feel for the words on the page that has to be there for me to feel like it's done. It doesn't mean it's perfect. I often go back and find lots of clumsy things in my older books. But if the music holds, then I'm okay. So when I'm doing those revisions in place like that, it's going for the music. But most of the stuff on the red line is not music changes. It's... Um, got the wrong word. Uh, Typos, continuity errors. Continuity errors, I do those a lot. <laughs> or uh, stopped writing one sentence and started writing another sentence. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so there's this sentence that doesn't make any sense, but you can tell both halves of it have something important. So I have to like invent the middle section that I skipped while I was writing. And those are the, the characteristic errors I commit. But I think your method is very clever, and if you are struggling with revision, 
it's worth trying Herbert's method. Uh, Herbert, if you're thinking of trying this yourself and you haven't done it yet, please report back how it works, because I think we would all be very interested in finding out. Thank you very much for the excellent question, sir. And we'll see you tomorrow-ish. We're, because we're off-grid here, um, we haven't quite worked out the system for getting to power and internet to get these posted. So things will be a little irregular. We'll go into that in the State of the Podcasters episode. See you around. The Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners. Join the conversation. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you.